Our Bible passage this morning can be found in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 1 to 11. And you can find this in the Church Bibles on page 1220. Page 1220, 1 Peter, first letter of Peter, chapter 5, and we're looking at the first 11 verses. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power for ever and ever. Amen. Thank you so much, David, for reading for us. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be uh, back together at the beginning of this uh, new term and new academic year. Please uh, keep that passage uh, open in front of you, and will you join me, please, in prayer, asking God that he would speak to us and teach us from these words. Let's pray together. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Father, we thank you for this portion of scripture that you have graciously breathed out for us. And we pray, Lord, that it may show itself this morning to be useful for teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, and training us in righteousness, so that each one of us who serves you will be thoroughly equipped for every good work that you've prepared for us to do. We ask this in the Lord Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, as uh, Ros was uh, saying at the beginning, we're starting a new series today, a new thematic series called Above Bar uh, DNA, which is reflecting on who we are 
in essence as a church. It's a series that I hope that we'll return to, God willing, over the coming years uh, to look at various aspects of the kind of church that we believe God is shaping us into here at Above Bar. And in case anyone is thinking, oh, no, vision, mission, values, oh, it just all sounds so corporate. I do that kind of stuff at work. I come to church to escape it. Uh, let me reassure you that each of the four messages in this series will be firmly rooted in the Bible. Uh, we're not looking for neat slogans. We're not looking for human wisdom. Rather, we'll be considering together solid biblical principles and how, led by the Holy Spirit, we can apply those into our particular setting here in Southampton. And remember, there are examples in God's Word, of course, of people thinking, praying, and planning strategically. Consider Jethro in Exodus 18. He offers Moses some practical advice that leads him introducing a whole new leadership structure. It removes bottlenecks. It revolutionizes the way Moses leads so that people can get the pastoral care and the wise counsel that they need. And in the New Testament, Paul is a great strategist, praying, planning, training, appointing, sending so that the church can grow and the gospel advance. Now, Above Bar already has some vision, mission, and value statements, but uh, when I was appointed as minister and team leader, it was on the basis of me setting out before the leadership and the wider church, the kind of church that I sense the Lord is transforming us into. And over time, as I get to know the church better, as I settle into this still relatively new role, as I spend time in prayer, I hope to lead us in sharpening and refreshing our vision. But for now, this Above Bar DNA series is something of a hybrid of our existing values and the vision that I shared leading up to uh, my appointment. And one of the things that I shared at interview and with members is the importance of humble, servant-hearted leadership. So this is the first in our series. Uh, Some of you have experience at work of being led by arrogant, harsh, overbearing bosses. Uh, We see it frequently, don't we, in local, national, and international politics too. I even experienced it in parkrun when I used to do that a few years ago, would you believe? I don't mean would you believe I did parkrun, I really did. I mean, would you believe that even in parkrun, there was overbearing leadership? The power had clearly gone to the run director's head so that we all felt like naughty little children if we weren't instantly quiet and on command before the run began. But tragically, far too many of us have experienced strong-arm leadership in local church settings too. You may be aware of a number of high-profile cases in recent years reported in the Christian press, some more widely in the media. Well-known, sometimes revered Christian leaders found to have exercised harsh, controlling, or domineering leadership. It's commonly known now as spiritual abuse. But brothers and sisters, it really should not be so in the church of which Christ is the head. Remember in Matthew 20, Jesus calls his disciples together and says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And here in 1 Peter 5, humility is like a thread that runs through our passage and ties it together. So notice right in the opening verse, Peter addresses church elders, those entrusted with the oversight of God's people. And look what he says in verse 1, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. Now Peter is an apostle. He's a sent one of Jesus. He has authority to speak as if speaking the very words of Jesus. So he could pull rank. on on the basis that this is apostolic authority. But instead, he sets an example of what he's about to teach. I won't lord it over you as an apostle. No, I appeal as a fellow elder. 
And then look at the final verse of our reading. Verse 11, to him, that is the God of all grace of verse 10, to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Now that is one of the keys to unlocking humble leadership within the church. That all those of us appointed as leaders recognize that the power, the authority, it never belongs to us. Rather, it belongs to Almighty God, who only ever entrusts it to us for a season. A couple of verses from Psalm 75 were really helpful to me during my appointment process, especially that period of 17 days, I remember each of them well, uh, between the uh, members' Q&A and the vote. Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7, No one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt themselves. It is God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. The power belongs to God. And in this new role, I'm very aware that if I'm ever tempted to exalt myself, God has all means at his disposal to bring me down. He can do that in an instant, should he choose to do so. Well, let's look at some of the detail of our passage. And although Peter specifically addresses church elders, initially at least, the principles here apply to all those with leadership responsibility. And later in the passage, they impact the wider church too. So you may lead a ministry or a team or a home group or a Bible study or a GSMA class or a youth group or a formation school huddle. Parents, you're called to lead your children. And those who right now don't have any leadership responsibility, well, you still need to know, don't you, what kind of leadership to expect and indeed to pray for within the family of God. So first, from verses 1 to 4, leaders... Be shepherds of God's flock. First two, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Now, there's much that we could unpack there, but I want us to notice two main things. First, who the flock belongs to. God calls his people often in the Bible sheep or lambs. But as I look out today, I don't think of you as being my flock. No, you are God's flock entrusted to my care and to the care of my fellow elders, but always God's flock. Indeed, as well as being under shepherds, elders are also sheep. We are under the chief shepherd, verse 4. We're responsible to care for ourselves too, or as Paul puts it to Timothy, to watch our own life and doctrine closely. Secondly, because we're caring for God's flock, it's no surprise, is it really, that the primary command is to be shepherds. The Bible uses different terms to describe the role of elders, overseer, leader, pastor, teacher, managing the affairs of the church. But when you consider Old and New Testaments together, there's a very clear and deliberate emphasis on shepherding as being the major responsibility. Now, Peter, of course, is very aware of this from his own personal experience. So when the Lord Jesus restores Peter after his three-time denial of knowing him, Jesus asks him three times, Do you love me? And when Peter responds positively each time, Jesus says, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. In the world of farming, one of the primary roles of a shepherd is to ensure that the sheep have nourishing food to eat, to lead them into green pastures. It's not their only responsibility, of course. The shepherd also protects the sheep from wolves and other predators. Uh, cares for them when they get sick or injured, and searches for any who wander off and go astray. But it's notable that when Jesus restores Peter, his emphasis 
is on the feeding. He's to feed God's sheep with God's wholesome word. And then in the second half of verse 2 on into verse 3, Peter tackles the whole area of motivation. Uh, Some of you here may well be desiring a leadership role, uh, either within this church or within the church that you perhaps call home. Uh, Perhaps as an elder, perhaps in another capacity. And let me say, to have such a desire is not in itself wrong. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Uh, I remember when I first joined Above Bar uh, back in uh, June 2021, and I emailed uh, John Risbridger, our former minister and team leader, something along the lines of, John, I'm planning to move to Southampton, I'm going to come to Above Bar, and I'll be really quite happy just serving quietly in the background. Um, That didn't work out too well. Um, But... but, (laughs) Of course, I didn't have any idea at that stage that a year later, John would step down from that role. But within months of him doing so, the Holy Spirit began to cultivate within me, very unexpectedly, a fresh desire for the noble task of being an overseer. Uh, using a seed planted by our other minister, Chris Webb, I should say, um, who, who initially put that thought in my mind. So you have him to thank or blame. <laughs> But let me say, for anyone else who has, or may at some point in the future have, that same kind of desire, you'll need to be prepared for the Lord to test your motivation. Because leadership desire can be driven by good and godly motives, but it can also be driven by the wrong kind of motives. You notice Peter sums it up in three phrases. He begins with the negative, that is the wrong and godly motivation, then highlights the positive godly motivation, which is pleasing to the Lord. So second half of verse 2, firstly, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Secondly, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Thirdly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Let's look at each of those in turn. First, not under compulsion, but willingly. I'm sure some of us have been involved in churches, whether they're elders or a single elder, serving because they believe they must. Perhaps they feel there's no one else willing or, or no one else who has leadership gifts. And they feel obliged to continue, which in many ways is admirable, but actually those are not the kind of leaders God wants. To shepherd God's flock is a huge privilege. So God doesn't want people doing it reluctantly with their arm twisted behind their back. Secondly, Not greedily, but eagerly. Uh, The words to serve in the NIV, I think, are implied, but they translate a single Greek word, which means simply eagerly or cheerfully. Uh, Likewise, dishonest gain is one word in the original meaning meaning greedily. Now, most of our elders at Above Bar are unpaid, and the majority of our leadership roles at Above Bar more widely are unpaid. But some are set apart and paid to do the work of shepherding as our God-given calling and vocation. And there's nothing wrong with having paid elders or ministers or a wider staff team. And if a church sets aside people for gospel ministry in that way, it is completely biblical to pay them. What would not be right, though, is for those appointed to be driven by a greedy desire for financial gain, or indeed for any other kind of gain. Paul to Timothy again. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I remember former minister here, David Jackman, teaching us at Bible College that if you go into Christian ministry hoping to make money, not only is it the wrong motivation, but you'll likely be disappointed anyway, or or words to that effect. 
But he also added that if a minister or elder is paid, it should be at a level where they're not anxious or worrying about money because that would be an unhelpful distraction from gospel ministry. Wise words. But in terms of motivation, God looks for under-shepherds who will serve eagerly rather than greedily. So not driven by the thought, what's in it for me? And then the third motivation, verse 3, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but rather being examples to the flock. So not driven by a thirst for power, but rather being an example of servant-hearted leadership. And here we get right to the heart of our focus on humble leadership. But I think we have to ask the question, why would a shepherd of God's flock want to lord it over the sheep that the chief shepherd entrusts to their care? Well, there can be many reasons, of course. Reasons of individual personality or temperament. Or someone can be driven by a sense of inadequacy or insecurity, so they they feel the need to assert their authority. Uh, Maybe a leader doesn't feel respected in their workplace or in their home. So church then becomes the arena where they're determined to command respect and loyalty to the inevitable harm of God's flock. But ultimately, of course, it comes down to our sinful human nature. You remember the essence of original temptation, Genesis 3 verse 5, is to quote, be like God. And right throughout the history of Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament and today, pride, that desire to be like God, has always been a temptation. Leaders start to think, act, speak like God, and many of their followers start to treat them like God. I don't know where this quote originates from, and I I couldn't find it online. I think it might be theologian J.I. Packer. I first heard it at Bible College. Listen to these very astute words. When you get into Christian ministry, people will want to put you on a pedestal, and you will want to let them. Very wise, challenging words for any leader or would-be leader, and indeed for the church too. The real tragedy of lording it over God's people, though, is that even God himself, the chief shepherd, well, he doesn't lead his people in this way. So when God comes into the world in human form, you remember how Jesus describes himself? The good shepherd declares, I am gentle and humble of heart. And this is why it's so important that leaders strive by grace and pray earnestly not to lord it over God's people, because the way that we lead sets an example to the flock entrusted to our care that is it sets an example of God's own leadership so if I start to lord it over you if I lead you in a harsh overbearing controlling way over time you may begin to believe that the chief shepherd is like that too but he's not the sovereign creator and ruler of the whole universe the all-powerful one is humble and gentle of heart even in his leadership of us Leaders be shepherds of God's flock. Then secondly, first half of verse 5, younger people submit to your elders. Verse 5, in the same way, you who are younger submit yourselves to your elders. So as elders are humbly submitting to the chief shepherd and not lording it over God's flock, in the same way, younger people are to see and follow that example and submit to their elders. Now, as always with the word younger, please feel free to self-identify. In the Bible, when it comes to leaders, uh, certainly anyone below 40 is considered to be relatively young. But the word translated younger here can also mean fresh, new, youthful. So I think Peter most likely has in mind those who are perhaps in their teens or maybe the 20-somethings. But why does he single out younger people for special attention? Well, because of that common tendency among young people to think that they know best. 
And I know that because I used to be a young person myself. Some of you are looking at me in disbelief. It's true, I really did. And as a youngster, I generally believed I knew best, better than my parents, better than my teachers, better than all adults, really. And as a new believer in my early 20s, it took some time for that attitude to begin to change. I don't think I've ever told you, have I, about my deluded face. Uh, I kept that back until after the vote. Uh, it, it, was, it, it was in the first year of me coming to faith, so be forgiving. Well, I, and I kind of became convinced I was a prophet. Now, I don't mean having a New Testament gift of prophecy. No, no, I mean kind of along the lines of Jeremiah, Micah, Elijah, uh, kind of thus says the Lord kind of prophet. And during that period of delusion, uh, it was combined with me reading these words in Psalm 119. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. Uh, you might imagine that that led to some quite interesting conversations with the elders at Lansdowne Church in Bournemouth, uh, where I was then in membership. Actually, they were very gracious and forgiving and amazingly still agreed to support me uh, to train for ministry. Maybe they just wanted rid of me, I don't know. But to those here who would consider yourselves to be younger, let me say this. I do remember what it is to be young, headstrong, and zealous. But if I could go back now and have a quiet word with my 24-year-old self, I would say, Jonathan, even if you're convinced before God that you know better, humble yourself and submit to your elders. It's the biblical thing to do. Now, there is actually a biblical exception to that principle. You can read about that in Acts 5, where Peter and the other apostles are commanded to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. But they reply to the religious authorities, we must obey God rather than human beings. So if a church leader or anyone else in authority ever tells you to do something that the word of God expressly forbids or not to do something that the word of God expressly commands, the godly thing is not to submit but rather to obey God. Leaders be shepherds of God's flock. Younger people submit to your elders. Then finally, second half of verse 5 through to verse 11, everyone clothe yourselves with humility. Second half of verse 5, all of you, that is elders, younger people, older people, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. I find it fascinating that Peter commands us to get dressed with humility. It's a reminder that this is not something that comes naturally to us, not something that will happen by chance. No, it, it requires deliberate intention on my part. I, I noticed that you're all wearing clothes today. Well, I don't know about those on live stream, but um, I'm, hopefully, hopefully they are. But for those in the building, I, I imagine we'd all agree that it's a good thing that we got dressed before we came out this morning. But that didn't happen automatically, did it, when you woke up? unless you have one of those Wallace and Gromit kind of uh, gadgets where you press the button and, and you're clothed. But you know, in the same way, each of us needs to determine daily, sometimes hourly, to put on my humility outfit, to actively clothe myself with it. So I've been studying this passage over the last couple of weeks. I've introduced a regular prayer into my daily routine. You might like to think about doing something similar, praying along these lines perhaps. Lord, please give me your power today, wherever I go, whoever I meet, whatever conversation I get into, whatever I write in an email or a WhatsApp message, please give me grace to be completely humble and gentle, to clothe myself with humility. Now, what is that going to look like in practice if above bar is increasingly a church marked out by humility? Well, here are some examples. We won't insist on getting our own way. 
It won't be me first, but others first. I'll look out for the interests of others, not only my own interests. I'll accept constructive criticism and truth-speaking in love. I'll be willing to give way and submit to others on matters of doctrine or practice that are non-essential to salvation. If I know I've upset someone or made a mistake, I'll reach out quickly and apologize. And if you need some added motivation to pursue humility and to clothe yourself with it, well, it's right there in the proverb that Peter quotes. Why bother with humility? Because, end of verse 5, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You see, if we don't bother, we'll find ourselves in opposition to the all-powerful God. We will be resisted by him. And brothers and sisters, that is a battle that you and I can never win. Now, my personal experience is that whenever God has had to humble me and teach me some humility, sometimes over an extended period of time, and, and that's happened often in my life, he's even done that in a wonderfully humble and gentle way. Not obliged to. He would be well within his rights to exert maximum force to oppose me. But he is the good shepherd. And he knows exactly what is needed to humble an individual proud sheep. He knows the force to exert, if I can put it in those terms. He'll often teach us humility by bringing trials and challenges into our lives. Things that cause us anxiety, verse 7. But let me say, if you're going through it today, please don't doubt the pure motives of your chief shepherd because he cares for you. And the fiery trials are a means of testing and growing your faith. The person who truly trusts in Jesus will sooner or later humble themselves under God's mighty hand and pray. Earnest prayer is is a mark of growing humility because it is humbling, isn't it? To say, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. That is humbling. The other motivation here for humbling ourselves is because we have an enemy, the devil, verse 8 who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And you know, human pride is one of his most successful hunting grounds. Always has been. If I'm going to have the strength needed to resist him, standing firm in the faith, verse 9, well then I'll need the all-powerful God of all grace on my side. I don't want him in opposition to me because I refuse to humble myself. Well, this is all very countercultural, isn't it? See, the world shouts at us, assert yourself, be true to yourself, look after number one, insist on your rights. The chief shepherd says, humble yourself. And if you need some final and very powerful motivation to live this way, when other people around you will be exalting themselves, promoting themselves, asserting themselves, well, you know, it's right there in this passage. Three times, Peter points us to the future, future glory. Right back in verse 1, Peter describes himself as a witness of Christ's sufferings who will also share in the glory to be revealed. He reminds the elders, verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. And he reminds all those of us trusting in Jesus that the God of all grace, verse 10, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Now, this is the way of the cross, of course. The way demonstrated to us 
by, in absolute perfection by the Lord Jesus, what we're going to remember in a moment together as we share communion. The way of the cross, the King of Kings showed us. Humility and suffering now. Glory and honor to come.